You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. It's a bit of a banner day for SpaceX's Starship. No, 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 no news of FAA approval for the next launch of the Super Heavy rocket just yet. I know lots of us are waiting for that. But even without a third launch date set, Starship's dance card is already getting quite full. Not bad for a vehicle that hasn't even gone orbital yet. T-minus. 20 seconds to LOS. Today is January 31st, 2024. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. Starlab will get a ride to LEO on Starship. Rocket Lab's Electron has its first 2024 launch. New Space India and Arian Space formalize their partnership. And our guest today is Kevin Brown, Senior Vice President of Business Development at All Points Logistics to tell us more about their new business line for the space industry called Space Prep. Let's dive into this Wednesday's Intel briefing, shall we? First up today is Starlab Space, which is a joint venture between Voyager Space and Airbus. Starlab Space say they've chosen to launch their Starlab commercial space station on a Starship ride. Given Starship's massive carrying capacity, it will be able to get Starlab into orbit in one single mission before the International Space Station reaches the end of its mission. Once it's launched, Starlab Space says its space station, which will be fully outfitted on the ground, by the way, will be completely ready to host up to four crew members once it is on low Earth orbit. And it's not just Starlab Space with big plans for Starship. Speaking at this week's Space Mobility Conference in Orlando, Florida, senior advisor with SpaceX Gary Henry says the Pentagon has asked SpaceX about potentially taking over Starship missions. In other words, instead of Starship being contracted out to the U.S. government, in certain critical cases, hypothetically, Starship would be handed over to the Department of Defense, making it fully government-owned and operated, and then given back to SpaceX once that mission is done. 
As you might imagine, this would be for missions that are highly sensitive or risky. Right now, SpaceX already has contracts for military missions for Starship, but this kind of, again, hypothetical request isn't something that they've hashed out yet internally or with the DoD. SpaceX says they're still, quote, exploring their options. Rocket Lab launched its first successful mission of 2024 called Four of a Kind from New Zealand. The Electron vehicle carried four space situational awareness satellites for Spire Global and Montreal company North Star Earth and Space. The Four of a Kind mission also included a successful splashdown of Electron's first stage in the ocean after launch. The satellites deployed will monitor near-Earth objects from space to provide timely and precise information for space object detection, tracking, orbit determination, collision avoidance, navigation, and proximity alerts. The mission was Rocket Lab's 43rd Electron launch overall, bringing the company's record of successfully deployed satellites to 176. New Space India Limited, known as NSIL, and Arian Space have signed a Memorandum of Understanding for a long-term partnership to support satellite launch missions. The MOU between the commercial arm of ISRO and the French launch company aims at establishing a long-term partnership between the two companies to meet the global commercial satellite launch service market needs. NSIL says their heavy-lift launch vehicle LVM-3 and Arian Space's Arian 6 will address global launch service market needs, meeting the demand for launching heavier communication and Earth observation satellites, as well as satellites for mega-constellations. NOSA, the Norwegian Space Agency, has successfully demonstrated the NORSAT-TD microsatellite developed by Space Flight Laboratory. The spacecraft successfully transferred data to a ground station using optical communications technology. The accomplishment is a first for a Dutch-built laser communication device and among the first achieved by a microsatellite. NORSAT-TD was the sixth mission developed by SFL for Norway and launched in April 2023. It is designed primarily as a maritime ship tracking mission. The demonstration microsatellite also carried experimental payloads for enhanced GPS positioning, spacecraft tracking by laser, and iodine fueled propulsion, in addition to the small CAT terminal. NORSAT-4, now under development at SFL for a 2024 launch, will feature a first-of-its-kind low-light imaging sensor. The Space Foundation's Space Commerce Institute is partnering with the Space Agency of the Republic of Azerbaijan to launch a three-month program on space mentorship for women. The program will connect five women aspiring to be in the space industry, ages 18 to 35, from Azerbaijan, with five international industry experts. The mentors will meet with their mentees one-on-one -on -one each month, and these sessions will be supplemented by monthly seminars from other space industry experts. The program aims to empower women to unlock their full potential and engage in global collaboration. Lots of interesting points being made at the Space Mobility Conference yesterday in Florida, and we mentioned earlier in the show about the DOD talking to SpaceX about how they might use Starship in sensitive missions. And some other sound bites from the conference address how U.S. government agencies more broadly should work with commercial space, especially when it comes to how they provide funding for emerging technologies in in-space satellite refueling and servicing. Many listeners of T-Minus might be familiar with the dreaded Valley of Death, a place where small companies, after being given some initial government funding for an idea or technology, can get mired in endless red tape and delays and, unfortunately, wither away before they can really get their idea off the ground and secure a buyer. 
The White House National Space Council Head of Commercial Space Policy, Diane Howard, spoke to the conference about the urgent need for change in processes here. Now, here's a quote from her address that we imagine might resonate with many of you. We cannot expect this mission area to develop just from concepts and oversight. We can't expect to bridge the valley of death through science and technology programs and industry accelerator programs. We need to identify and prioritize resources, funding, and personnel. We need requirements for the use of mobility and logistics. And we need roadmaps with prioritized lines of effort and initiatives. We need creative acquisition strategies with public-private partnerships and cost and risk shares. We need government organizations like Space Force, NASA, NRO, and others to get us off the block with clear strategy, clear policy, clear requirements, and real funding. The first metal 3D printer for space, developed by Airbus for the European Space Agency, will soon be tested aboard the Columbus module of the International Space Station. It could be a real game-changer for manufacturing in space and future missions to the Moon or Mars. There have already been several plastic 3D printers on board the ISS, the first of which arrived in 2014, and astronauts have already used them to replace or repair plastic parts, since one of the major problems of everyday life in space is the supply of equipment, which can, as you might imagine, take months to arrive. Guanayel Aridon, Airbus Space Assembly lead engineer, says the metal 3D printer will bring new on-orbit manufacturing capabilities, including the possibility to produce load-bearing structural parts that are more resilient than a plastic equivalent. Astronauts will be able to directly manufacture tools such as wrenches or mounting interfaces that could connect several parts together. The flexibility and rapid availability of 3D printing will greatly improve astronauts' autonomy. We live in the future. And speaking of in-space satellite servicing, space mobility provider ExoTrail spoke to Space News at Space Mobility and said they're working on a new satellite transfer vehicle to take U.S. military satellites to geostationary transfer orbit with a target vehicle launch in 2026. And we have a link to the full Space News exclusive in our show notes for you. And that's it for our briefing for today. And I say it every episode because it's true. There's only so much we can cover in our news briefing and lots more space reading to be done. So in addition to the links to everything we've mentioned in the briefing today, our show notes always have a bunch of selected reading for your edification. Space incidents during Taiwan's recent elections. Space Force still hasn't cleaned up its spill on a sacred volcano in Hawaii. There's lots for you there, so check out our episode show notes or head on over to space.n2k.com and click on this episode for more. Hey, T-Minus crew, if you find this podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and a short review in your favorite podcast app. That will help other space professionals like you find the show and join the T-Minus crew. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Kevin Brown, Senior Vice President of Business Development at All Points Logistics. Kevin and All Points are starting a new business line specifically for the space industry. And here's more on that. I am standing up a new line of business within All Points called Space Prep, uh, which is developing a, a line of infrastructure at launch sites that is roughly analogous to airports in the air transportation industry. It turns out that the launch sites in the U.S. are starting to accommodate more and more launches and the infrastructure, uh, the buildings that you use to prepare satellites and, and rockets for, for launch and, and other uh, support type facilities are simply inadequate to support the, uh, this, the frequency of launch that we anticipate over the next few years. You beautifully addressed uh, sort of the gap that you saw there. And I'm, I'm always very curious when I hear about a business that's starting up about the timing. So you, you decided to start doing this now. What, what sort of motivated you to do this? Well, actually, we started about two years ago. Okay, so <laughs> recent dish. <laughs> this is a long, long process. We, we saw this. Actually, we initially solved the problem way back in 2019. We actually started doing some uh, some publicity and brain some op-eds just within the local industry saying, hey, there's a big problem coming. Um, and uh, uh, at the time, we really weren't running this, this type of business. We just saw the problem. And since we didn't see anyone stepping up to address it by uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we decided, well, you know, this is our bread and butter. Why not stand up a business to go do it ourselves? It's necessary to do it now. In fact, we're a little bit late, quite frankly, because the the significant growth in uh, launch cadence is going to be happening, starting to really ramp up next year and then taking off even further in 25 and 2025 and 2026. It takes years to get the permitting and do all the environmental analysis, get the buildings designed, raise the money, do the construction. So we're looking at opening our first facility out at the Kennedy Space Center in 2026. That's the earliest we can do it. And that's still, you know, it's two and a half years out from now. Additional facilities uh, in 2027. Uh, so your question was, why now? And it's because the demand is aligning with the need for additional capacity in that time frame. You also dovetailed really beautifully. I, was, I had just read about the new facility that's being spun up at Kennedy Space Center. Can you tell me a bit more about that and, and what that facility is going to have there? Sure. It's, we're we're going to be developing uh, two facilities at our KSC complex. Uh, located on about 60 acres of land that is just south of the vehicle assembly building out near Complex 39. Uh, the first building we're going to open is a logistics center, which is a, uh, a warehouse and processing bays for small and or medium-sized spacecraft. Uh, so there will be a number of clean rooms, uh, some of which are rather small, you know, 15 by 20-foot rooms with a table, because we're hearing in the market that many of the s small satellite, small spacecraft manufacturers and operators don't need to spend a lot of money on a large clean room high bay, which is really all that's available today. They just need a small room for a couple of weeks once they get to the launch site to do their final preparation. So we're going to rent them essentially a hotel room. And that's the way we think of it. This is a hotel. And we've got, we got multiple rooms and they're different sizes. They have different, different uh, capabilities. 
customers will be able to pick and choose which ones they need for the period that they need it and only pay for what they need. The building will also have uh, what we call operation control centers, which are going to be rooms with consoles and data walls, uh, because many of these operators bring entire launch campaign teams into town, and they need a place to monitor uh, and control their mission while they're preparing for launch, and even during launch. So we'll have connectivity out to the launch pads and you know, the ways to bring in the, their data real time into these control centers. That facility will be open in 2026. We call it the Logistics Center. Just uh, on the same complex, on the same 60 acres, uh, we'll be developing a much larger facility, uh, about 270,000 square feet of a what we call a hazardous processing facility. It's located well away from all the other facilities, including the logistics center I just mentioned. Uh, and it will have six high bays uh, that can accommodate spacecraft that are up to like 150 feet long in a large clean room. Uh, as well as encapsulation bays where spacecraft can be fueled with any of the hazardous commodities like uh, you know, some of the nasty fuels and propellants that, that spacecraft use, uh, and then be encapsulated into the, the fairings of their launch vehicle and then rolled out to the pad. So the, the fueling will, all, will occur in that facility. That facility will be open perhaps late 2026, but more likely uh, 2027. Fascinating. Okay, so... Uh, I can see the value for sure of this kind of service. And I'm, I'm curious when you're talking to uh, prospects, what do you tell them is sort of the competitive advantage of them using a service like yours? Excellent question. There's two main advantages. One is proximity to the launch pads. Well, these facilities will be by far the closest processing facilities to the launch pads at KSC for multi-user purposes. In addition, they're being designed for flexibility. I mentioned the small bays while ago today. If you bring a, a, a spacecraft into the, the Cape area, you really have only two choices. Either you have either your launch provider, you know, the, the folks you're paying for the, the, the rocket launch, will give you some space in their facility, which is very limited. It's not really set up for the type of processing you need to do. They'll say, hey, you can have a corner of this room. Here, go, go find yourself a table and you can be in there for a week. And after that, you got to get out which is not particularly uh, accommodating with the, some of these uh, operators need. The other option are, are large high bay clean rooms, uh, which you can use, but they're very expensive. So our differentiator is we're going to have these multiple buildings that have different size rooms, uh, from the small ones I mentioned before to uh, medium size, uh, what we call integration cells, that can be used to really mount multiple spacecraft onto, say, a, a deployment mechanism, reformat ring, a lot uh, for secondary uh, for secondary missions, and then stacked with the primary payload and encapsulated. Or we also have the large base, for the large uh, spacecraft that really need the full-up facility uh, near the launch pad. So it really boils down to proximity to launch pads and the flexibility of a set of facilities that simply doesn't exist today, where you only buy with for as long as you need it. And I'm also curious about SpacePad being part of a larger business. Can you talk a little bit about any integration there or any advantage that uh, customers can have from sort of being a part of that larger context? Sure. All Points has been around for about 25 years, uh, has been in the business of launch support services and technical services like this for a long time. So we have a team, uh, particularly a leadership team, that is deeply experienced uh, in these types of operations. That's a huge benefit to our customers because, or particularly our space prep customers, because the 
operators and uh, uh, companies that are building these spacecraft aren't experts in launch operations. They're not experts in what is really available at the Cape once we uh, we all get off the bus and my, my satellite gets uncrated from the truck. I really don't know what to expect. Well, we do. We got this, this leader team has been doing it for a very long time. In fact, I worked for years on the NASA contract that did payload processing for the space shuttle, as did many of my colleagues, either the same contract or something similar. The larger service offering and capabilities that all points bring provides that expertise, uh, tools, and many individuals who have expertise in, in, in this type of operation. Uh, particularly in the specialties uh, include things like uh, cyber software, IT developed, IT support, and those types of things that are uh, essential to these operations. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, one of the reasons that we're chatting today, of the many reasons, is uh, Spacecom Conference. Uh, and I know that All Points and Space Prep is a platinum sponsor. So if somebody sees you in the hallway at the conference, it, what, what do you want them to stop and stop you and talk about? Or what, what should they know if, when they're chatting with you? I like to talk about the, how the space industry, particularly the commercial space industry, but also the government, how it's, how it's changing, what is different today uh, from what it was five years ago, and then what we expect it to be different like two or three years from now. But it's important to be looking behind and looking forward so they're making good decisions on where to invest their resources and where are the business opportunities that align with, uh, with the upcoming needs uh, for Space Force, for civil space, and, and for commercial missions. Can you elaborate? I actually would really love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> like, where do, you see, where do you see things going in the next few years? Well, you know, what's, what's really happened is the cost, the cost of spacecraft and launch has come down significantly just over the past five years. You know, SpaceX has been a leader in reducing costs for launch. Uh, and that's going to it's going to continue to come down because right now they largely have a monopoly, uh, so they can uh, the, the price for launch is a whole lot less than it used to be, uh, but it could be even lower uh, with more competition. And now that ULA has got Vulcan online, and some of the smaller launchers uh, are going to get into operations, uh, Relativity and Firefly and and others, we think the price is going to continue to come down. In addition, the spacecraft, the satellites themselves are a lot cheaper because you can pack a lot more capability into a smaller package. So what that's done is it's opened up many new applications for space, uh, everything from you know, agricultural monitoring to this different types of communication, real-time imaging, uh, all kinds of science applications, uh, medical. I mean, I've been reading about you know doing 3D human tissue, 3D planting of human tissue in orbit for, for treating cancer. I mean, those there's things that we haven't even hardly imagined yet. That's driving demand up. And what I think we're going to see is something very analogous to what happened in the uh, airline industry years ago. Do you, some of you may remember deregulation. <laughs> it's a long time ago. <laughs> but there, there was a time when taking an air trip was something of a novelty. It was super expensive. There weren't very many of them. You go down to the Orlando airport, had, what, eight gates. <laughs> That's hard to imagine now. I know, <laughs> I know. Right, there's McCoy Field. <laughs> um, but then we deregulated and the innovation of private enterprise took over and the air industry just uh, just exploded for you know commercial uh, passenger transportation. I think we're at that same inflection point in space this decade. Because of the tremendous decrease in costs, we're going to see a similar increase in utilization of space for just a variety of, of uses. 
to include uh, human space travel. We'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome back. And today we're doing a bit of trivia for you, as January 31st has had some interesting space history milestones. On January 31st, 1958, the United States entered the space age with its first successful launch of a satellite, Explorer 1, aboard a Redstone rocket launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. The Explorer 1 team is a who's who of U.S. space legends, really. The Redstone was built by a team led by Dr. Werner von Braun, the Explorer 1 instrumentation was built by Dr. James Van Allen, and the Explorer 1 satellite itself was built by JPL and led by Dr. William H. Pickering. Names I know well from physics textbooks over the years. I'm sure many of you do as well. Explorer 1 was not only the U.S.'s first satellite, but also the first U.S. satellite with scientific instrumentation aboard. Yeah, I also would have guessed that the first satellite would have been military, but I would have guessed wrong. Explorer 1 had cosmic ray detectors aboard, and that always sounds so sci-fi to say out loud. And yes, this is the mission that led to Dr. Van Allen discovering the existence of strong radiation belts around our planet, which we now call Van Allen belts in his honor. Second bit of trivia from today in space history was January 31st, 1961. And that was the day that Ham the Astrochimp flew on a suborbital flight as part of Project Mercury making him the first hominid to ever fly to space. He was only three and a half years old when he went to suborbital space and had been in space training for about half of his life. He experienced six and a half minutes of weightlessness and 14.7 Gs of force on re-entry. Ham the Astrochimp was in suborbital space for a total of 16 minutes and 39 seconds and had to do work while he was up there, mind you. Ham's flight, proved that difficult tasks could be done even while in space. Ham retired from NASA in 1963, well, as a chimp can retire, and went on to live his life in various zoos until he died at age 26, which isn't exactly ripe old age for a chimp, but close. One might imagine the stress of what he went through might have cut his years a bit short. I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't mention that the use of animals for space programs, like Laika the Space Dog and Ham the Astrochimp, was never without controversy or obvious ethical issues. And I would also be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that without Ham's space flight, Alan Shepard would never have flown just a few months later on Freedom 7, the first U.S. human suborbital space flight. 
So we thank you, Ham. And listeners, if you are ever at the New Mexico Museum of Space History in Alamogordo, New Mexico, I highly recommend it, by the way, there is a memorial to Ham right out front. That's it for T-minus for January 31st, 2024. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. And we'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.